You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Alex Rogan had a dream. You really are leaving here, aren't you? To be as far away from here as possible. You get your chance. When it comes, you gotta grab it with both hands. It started with a game. You gonna bust the record! But it wasn't just any game. You have been recruited by the Star League to defend the frontier against Sur and the Kodan Armada. And then, one night... Centauri's the name. We have to talk about a matter of utmost importance. Step into my office. I've seen him come and I've seen him go, but you're the best, my boy. Light years ahead of the competition. Hey. Alex didn't find his dream. Recruited by the Star League to defend the frontier against Zur and the Kodan Armada. Of all the life forms on all the planets in all the galaxies. Oh my god! One has been chosen. Alex Rogan. Alex? I'm Alex. Is the last Starfighter. For every Earthling who's ever imagined traveling beyond the stars. Maybe there is a Starfighter left. I love you, Alex Rogan. Comes the unforgettable story of one who made it. <laughs> the last Starfighter. everybody and welcome once again to GeekFest France. My name is Carlos Perone and today we are going to be talking about The Last Starfighter, cult movie from the early 80s that has not only a very special place as far as cult sci-fi goes, but probably an even more important place for the development of CGI technology, you know, in the special effects field. This is a movie that I remember seeing in the theater and while it doesn't, you know, kind of hold the weight of a, of a Star Wars or a Star Trek type of film, it, it definitely kind of resonates. And I know a lot of people love this film, and there is actually a possible future for it, too. So let's begin with The Last Starfighter. What did I teach you? You are the Duke of New York. You are a number one. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Can you dig it? Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That spawn of Satan. <laughs> oh, really? The Force will be with you, always. Okay, we're going to talk about a film from the 80s, 1984 exactly, that I remember watching and it kind of left an impression on me. 
It is not a super mega blockbustery type of Star Warsy thing. However, it has its throwbacks and its callbacks to something like Star Wars. Uh, what I'm talking about is the Last Starfighter. Now, in the mid 80s, mid to early 80s, you know, obviously a lot of films followed Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. And you could kind of say that they were inspired in a way by the success of those kind of films. And this is one of those films that kind of lives in the shadow of Star Wars. Now, while the film has this, you know, fantastical sci-fi theme, it also has a very heavy video game theme, which was something that at around that time, we were kind of starting to ride a wave that was about to end. Uh, and it was kind of in the process of ending. And by that, I mean the Atari video game wave, this onslaught of Atari-related games that came out in the early 80s that then spectacularly crashed and burned that then gave rise to other companies who um, would put out, you know, better, more advanced video games. Now, this film deals a lot with video games, if you think about it, and there have been video games featured in the past, you know, in other films and, and since. But specifically, this is a story about a boy, a young man, let's say, who lives in a trailer park and he kind of wants to get out of the trailer park. And one of the things he does, one of the hobbies he has, other than just hanging out with his friends and his girlfriend and that sort of thing, is he spends a lot of time playing a video game called The Last Starfighter. And this is a, again, for those of you who are a little younger, Video games back then, you had to go to an arcade or you had to go to a pizza store or a candy shop or somewhere uh, where they would actually have the actual stand-up units where you would play these games. And, you know, if you went to an arcade, you know, they had 20, 30 different machines that you would just keep popping quarters into it. But if you went into a smaller place, like I remember, you know, going into a pizza store or something like that, where they would have one or two games there. I never really had that big of a selection because I didn't have an arcade. The closest thing to an arcade was a bowling alley that had, I believe, maybe about seven or eight video games and pinball machines. I remember pinball machines, you know, a little uh, a little uh, leftover from the 60s and 70s, I guess. They were still around, uh, but people, you know, everything was about video games. This was the, the craze of the time. And Atari was a huge, huge uh, name in actually bringing the video game home to actually going from the arcade locations to actually bringing it home. But this movie, again, deals with uh, uh, this kid who's, you know, this kid who's into video games and he keeps playing this particular game. And then all of a sudden, one day, he is approached uh, by a man in a strange looking car. And because he just beat the game, he got the high score and it's a big deal, at least for his little trailer park community there, the way he's living in, because that's, I guess, the most exciting thing that ever happens in that particular place. That he uh, is approached by a man and the man is there basically to recruit him. And he brings him in the car. The car all of a sudden starts to fly and takes him out to another planet. And he's there and he's told, yeah, you're here because you beat the game. And the game is really a recruiting uh, device that I came up with to see if you could qualify to be a starfighter pilot to help us fight this evil guy and blah, blah, blah. And in the story, you know, spoiler alert, you know, he, he at first he's reluctant. And then and while he's away, they leave behind a clone of him uh, to kind of let people know that, you know, nothing's going on. Everything's fine. He's still here while he's out there fighting and also to kind of distract you know, the bad guys from realizing that this particular person is no longer there. So he, he's reluctant to, to fight. He doesn't want to fight. He returns home and then realizes that there are these assassins that are coming after him on Earth because he's already been brought to the planet. So they were aware of him. So now he's involved, like it or not, he's involved. So he kind of changes his mind and then goes back out there again to fight. And his his mentor, the guy that recruited him, uh, is uh, apparently killed. So he's out there with a uh, like a co-pilot who becomes his friend. And they're engaging this evil army of um, other uh, fighters that are coming to destroy the, the good guy planet. And eventually he basically defeats everybody, comes back home, gets his girlfriend and flies back into space to help them, I guess, rebuild this partially destroyed area that the, the bad guys destroyed from the good guys. So it, it's not, you know, it, it's really not a very complicated theme or not a very complicated story. 
it does have a very heavy Star Warsy feel of the the young man that is wants to just get out of the area he's living in. He's tired of his friends, uh, you know, nobody seems to have much of an ambition and uh, he wants to just live free and get out. You know, that theme is very, very heavy in this movie. But they do throw a different curveball into the story and that, and I'll talk about later, is this idea of a clone that's there. That's a very interesting thing in the movie. The whole video game aspect of the movie, uh, the fact that video games were pretty prominent back then, plays well into somewhat of a believable recruiting tool, if you will. The special effects is something else that we're going to talk about because this has groundbreaking special effects. Not so much for, how should we say, what they were able to accomplish in terms of how it stands up today, but its place in history. This is a very important film in special effects history and that we will go over. As you're watching the opening credits, it almost looks like a television show, the way the credits are coming at you. And they're very reminiscent of of other movies, opening credits, and even the fonts that they use. They're very Carpenter-ish fonts. It's no uh, surprise, given the fact that the director of this film is Nick Castle. If you're not familiar with Nick Castle, his name will pop up many, many, many times when you are dealing with John Carpenter for a very long time. He was an actor in some of the early John Carpenter films like Dark Star, Halloween. He has a very small role in Escape from New York. He co-wrote Escape from New York. So he was, you know, he's in there for that. As a matter of fact, in Halloween, he played Michael Myers. He's the original Michael Myers. But on his own, then he started to branch out and do other stuff like writing some other films and directing a whole bunch of other films too. After The Last Starfighter, he did The Boy Who Could Fly. He did uh, an episode of Amazing Stories, if you remember back then, Amazing Stories. So he's done some work after that, some lesser known movies, you know, throughout his continuing career. So again, this is a name that will pop up in the late 70s and 80s plenty of times. The star of the film is Lance Guest, who looks very familiar when you look at him, but then you have to kind of place him. Where exactly are you familiar with seeing him? And his biggest, let's see, claims to fame, as far as you could remember, I mean, he's done a ton of television, but as far as film goes, obviously, uh, Last Starfighter, he was a star, but before that, he had done Halloween 2. So there isn't kind of like an indirect Carpenter connection there. And he had also starred in Jaws the Revenge. Wow, that's a tough one uh, to... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to uh, put on your on your resume but hey he had a pretty you know big role in that film but the last starfighter is the one that keeps coming back all the time as far as when you see him in conventions and that sort of thing and like i mentioned he does have a lot of uh television work on his credits also you also have robert preston a very famous super famous actor who has done just about everything in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the set, you name it. He's best remembered for the music man. But however, here, this is his last film before he passed away. Then you have Catherine Mary Stewart, who plays the girlfriend. Whenever you see her, again, she's an 80s actress. She's always, she's been in just about a lot of these kind of B films in the 80s, Night of the Comet, The Last Starfighter, Night Flyers, uh, Weekend at Bernie's, <laughs> you name it. She's done all kinds of, and it's, it's, again, when you see her, that's her. You always recognize her right away because she's, she's a very uh, attractive young lady at the time. Uh, and it's just, she's like a perfect girlfriend role type of uh, actress. And the other actor you might recognize, at least the name, definitely not the face in this film, is Dan O'Herlihy. Another actor similar to Preston, you know, he's an old-timey actor from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, you name it. But the movie that we genre nerds probably recognize him the most for is Robocop. He's the old man. He's the boss. The boss of... The boss, <laughs> the boss of the bad guy. He also was in Halloween 3, if you remember. Uh, he played also the bad guy. He was the, the, the main bad guy in that film. Here he plays a good guy. He's the co-pilot in the film. He's Gerg, uh, but he's wearing makeup. Uh, he's wearing this hue, this very reptilian kind of mask. So it's very hard to identify him. And, you know, I, I've never, you know, you hear the voice and you're like, that voice sounds kind of familiar, but 
you never make that connection until you actually click on it and figure out who the heck he is. There are other, obviously, other actors, and they're all, again, they're all kind of working B actors, you know. Uh, and there's even a young Will Wheaton in this film that apparently the majority of his uh, speaking uh, lines were cut, so you don't see much of him. He is there in the background, apparently, here or there, you know, uh, but, you know, unfortunately, he never got his uh, his his walk-on scene. Now, one of the things that I mentioned was about the early CGI aspects of this film. Uh, this is a film that they had decided at some point that they were going to go CGI when CGI really didn't exist. Now, when you watch a lot of this CGI, at first you're kind of teased with it a little bit because you're watching the video game. You're watching Alex, the star, playing the video game of The Last Starfighter. And obviously on the video game, they're not going to give you the full render of what the final renders are going to look like because they have to purposely show you something of a lesser quality. But... You know, in a way, for its time, it is also a very advanced-looking video game graphic that they're showing you, uh, at least the introduction of it. A lot of the gameplay that you actually see is more of a targeting kind of game where you have a huge target and these things are flying and you're just shooting at them and, you know, kind of aiming and shooting, aiming and shooting. A little bit, I would imagine, similar to what the Star Wars arcade game used to look like. You know, where those very fine lines, basically the outlines of certain things floating around. So they kind of show you that. But the video game itself also has the, the typical, you know, high concept introduction levels that some video games used to have, where it's a little fancier looking. Here, it's a lot fancier looking, where you actually see these starfighters flying and doing these maneuvers and this sort of thing and how cool they look. Granted, they're not looking as cool as they're going to look later in the film when you see the real thing. And when you watch this film now, it doesn't hold up in terms of the, the special effects. The important thing about this film to remember and to keep in mind is that this film feels a little like Tron as far as the effects go. However, with Tron, you were dealing with a movie that you were in the computer world. So things were supposed to look like they're coming out of a computer. Here, they decided, no, we're going to do the entirety of the special effects, the space effects almost the entirety, as a CGI character, you know, in a computer. And this had never been done before for the entirety of the film. They might have done a little bit here, a little bit there. A lot of times there were computer simulations. So, for example, Star Trek II, which is credited to having one of the first CGI sequences in, in film, when you see the, um, the computer simulation of the Genesis planet being created, Yes, that was done with CGI, but it kind of looks CGI. It looks like something that came out of a computer because it's supposed to look that way. Here, you're doing a little something different. It's not supposed to look like a computer. It's supposed to look something realistic, photorealistic. And I think for the time, they pretty much almost succeeded. You know, I wouldn't give it 100% because even today... You know, with the unbelievable CGI technology that we're dealing with today, after the, the, the super, you know, CGI revolution of the mid-90s, you know, after Jurassic Park, how everything just kind of exploded in, in realism, we're still dealing sometimes when things are kind of looking a little quirky, a little not totally realistic. So what I'm saying is that back then, this was a huge step forward. As far as the technology went, you went to the theater and you had never seen something like this before, period. There it is. You had not seen it. It looked different. It looked a little strange. But when you really thought about it, it didn't look completely, completely realistic because we were so used to, for so many years, dealing with models and miniatures, dealing with optical printers and layering of images, matte lines, all those things, grain. You know, we were dealing with all that stuff. So when all of a sudden you're shown something that it looks so clean and neat and smooth as it flies and it banks and it makes these kind of moves that are like, wow, this is so cool how I could do these things. It's a little startling at first, but you kind of get used to it. Later on, this was pushed a lot further with many, many other things, uh, including even television. If you think about it, I would say Babylon 5 probably is the one that pushed it the most on television in terms of saying, that's it. We're doing this whole 
utter outer space thing in a digital format and it's going to work. And it did. They did some amazing work that you can kind of say, well, here's where it started. It started with this film. Now, granted, like, like I mentioned, you know, these are the same guys that did Tron. So they, they kind of have a, a little bit of a background on it. So they're not exactly new at this. When, Alex is visited by the, the recruiter, let's say, who is Centauri. His name is Centauri. It's Robert Preston. And, and the way that he kind of delivers his lines, it, it is similar to, I mean, because he was best known for the music, man, he kind of has this kind of sing-songy way. He refers to himself in the third person all the time. He's, he's a salesman. He's there to just kind of get him and run type of, uh, type of thing. But the car that he shows up with, it's a very futuristic looking car because it's supposed to look earthy, you know, like it could blend in earth. And it can kind of blend. And from what I understand, it was kind of made out of a DeLorean chassis, but it doesn't look like the Back to the Future sporty one. It's more of a, I don't want to say a station wagon, but it is supposed to be a longer car so you can put two people in the back comfortably. So it, it, it does look somewhat futuristic, but yeah, it could kind of fit there. But when you kind of see those two door, those doors open up, you know, in a, in a DeLorean style, you're like, oh yeah, it's a DeLorean. <laughs> you understand what you're dealing with at that point. Now, when you do really see the, the special effects, when you actually see what it looks like, the best way to describe it nowadays, it looks like animatics. And animatics, if you're not familiar with, is something they do, they've been doing them for a while, but in the past they were doing them in different ways. For example, when they were shooting, I think, either Empire or Return of the Jedi, especially Return of the Jedi, I remember watching these little short films that they would show you in the making of Return of the Jedi. For example, the forest bike chase, and they would do the bike chase with toys. So they would take a a, a 12-inch action figure, let's say, for example, uh, and put him on this mock-up bike and have him fly through a miniature set, let's say. Now, nothing fancy, just a miniature, you know, tabletop kind of recreation of a forest. And they would have him fly around with a camera in front and then shooting from the side. So they would kind of plan out what the shooting script would look like with actual video footage of camera angles and, and movement, you know, live footage. Not as opposed to, but in addition to the more traditional storyboarding. Storyboarding was how they would do things normally. You would storyboard a thing and then you would just follow the storyboards. Okay, I'm going to shoot this scene, I'm going to shoot that scene, I'm going to shoot this scene. But when you have a very heavy special effects kind of scene that you want to be able to narrow it down as much as possible. You don't want to waste time, effort, and money on creating things that eventually you will not use or creating things that will not work because of technical limitations. You have to narrow it down so much more. So by creating these little recreations of what you want things to look like, uh, video, low-quality versions of them that's how you would kind of do those sort of things uh with some of these uh star wars and other films that they were able to do that later on the animatics were basically they were done in a different way instead of shooting live action video of miniatures for example to kind of get a feel of what things are going to look like they started using computers so all of a sudden now you have entire storyboarded if you will sequences that are not just plain pictures, but actual movements that are done through computers on virtual sets, basically. You create a set, and eventually, and the, the, the interesting thing about these animatics is that a lot of times, these are low-end versions of what you're going to end up with. And again, as computers get faster and better, and are able to give you a, you know, a preview of what things are going to look like, you know, they, they would be more accurate and more good-looking. But here... As I was saying earlier, the final product that is being rendered out looks a lot like current or even, I would say, you know, animatics from maybe 20 years ago. You got to remember, this movie is almost 40 years old. <laughs> it's pretty old. So it's it's really, really interesting how these things have progressed. You know, to one of the biggest problems they had was rendering time. And, the, you know, the computers they used were, at the time, you know, revolutionary computers in terms of how much data they could crunch and how much you could preview something and you could tweak it and change it and then look at the outcome because you know you figure now even today 
And you probably figured even 30, 40 years ago, you know, okay, I'm going to use a computer. I'm going to make a, a background. I'm going to get a ship fly left to right. Okay, ship's going to fly left to right. Boom, there it is. Uh, now, you know what? Let's make it a, make it move a little faster. Good. And you know what? I need a little more light, digital light, obviously, on the top of the canopy. Okay, boom, there it is. And uh, can he fire a, a laser beam from the left side of the ship? Okay, boom, there it is. No. It, it doesn't work that fast. That's how you think it works, but it doesn't, especially back then. Every little tweak, every little change, even the design of the ship itself, it would take forever to come up with the initial, you know, wireframe design to then be able to manipulate it. I mean, I, I had a very small taste of this back in the mid-90s, I think it was, which is quite a long time even after this movie came out where in a company I used to work with where they did some very minor graphic work and all of a sudden just like words and titles and things like that that you wanted to have some kind of 3D effect it would be one of these things where the artist would construct these wireframe designs of each letter and then they would map out a a movement of how you want these letters to move and then they would map out the lights how do you want this these letters to be lit and then what kind of uh, surfaces are do these letters have and what are these letters going to be placed on top it, it was and then it was kind of like all right i'm leaving the machine is rendering and overnight when they would return the next day they would see the outcome of how these letters moved around to see if it worked and the slightest stupid little change would require quite a bit of time to make the change and then to render it again to actually make it something that's usable so those are the type of things that they used to go through with these earlier uh, CGI techniques is the amount of time that it would take. And in one of these interviews I listened to having to do with The Last Starfighter, one of the effects guys was talking about how originally when they were mapping out the amount of special effects that they wanted, that they decided they needed, given the time that was required, the time that they had, and how much time it took the machine to do it, they estimated it would take 17 months to design and render all of this data. Uh, however, at that time, they only had six months. <laughs> so you could see that all of a sudden now, they basically have a third of the time that is needed to come up with what they have. So what ends up happening at that point is that they're like, okay, well, you know, the only other way to do this is to obviously shorten the special effects list as much as possible, trim it as much as possible. Because remember, this isn't like shooting film. When you shoot film, yes, you can shoot an extra 30 seconds of something or a minute of something. And even, I don't even want to say film, but video, digital right now, you know, everybody shoots digital now. Nobody shoots on film. So it doesn't really matter how much you shoot because you're really not wasting anything. You can just reuse it. You know, you re-record, whatever. It's data. It's it's a hard drive. With film, it was a little different. People were a little more economical and worried about it because they didn't want to waste money on extra film. Film was expensive, even for filmmakers. You know, unless you're a superstar, you know, director that you know the studio just throws as much film stock as you want. But most stories you hear about is how people are scrambling for film, actual cellulose, and, and purchasing it and acquiring it and being able to use it. But this is back then. This is movie making up until you know the mid '90s, let's say. But even back then, <laughs> when it comes to digital work on film, you can shoot an extra 30 seconds. You can shoot an entire sequence you don't need. It becomes a deleted scene, you know, something for the future, whatever. But you, you can do a little bit more. Here, with digital technology, you have to stop exactly where you want to stop. Because if you add another second of something that is not needed... It's going to cost you money and it's going to cost you a lot of digitizing time. So it is very, very, very important to not overdo things uh, that are not needed. So, you know, that's another thing to keep in mind. The overall feel of the movie is a very light tone, if you will. And it's difficult to kind of place it somewhere. Like I said, if you're using Star Wars as the footprint, Star Wars is a much more serious film. More people die, obviously. It's a more serious, more personal thing. And this movie... People do die. There are some somewhat horrific kind of deaths in it, more or less. But overall, it still has this very, I hate to say it, but 80s TV sitcom-y light tone to it. And maybe that was just some kind of leftover trope from the 70s. The film also looks 
almost 70s. It's got a very independent look. I don't want to use the word cheap, but it's very rough looking. It's not a sharp kind of film. And the uh, makers of the film, they said themselves that they didn't want to go for a, a, a suburban kind of location. They wanted to bring it down a level. A little more because the suburban kind of locations that were used on films like Poltergeist or E.T., yes, it shows you what suburban life is like, but for this particular character, they wanted him to be a little poorer, a little more desperate, a little more out there in terms of no hope and things are just kind of crashing all around them that he's really looking for a way out of this kind of life that he's living in. Granted, he's not living in a war zone or anything like that, but it's a very troubled, uh, if you will, existence. This is somebody who wants to do more, wants to make more out of their life. And you have a scene in the film where, you know, he gets the uh, uh, notice about a student loan that he wanted to, to be able to go to a certain college that he was declined the loan. So it's like, oh, great, I gotta, I can't go to that, that college. I'm gonna have to go to one of these local schools here, that sort of thing. So, you know, that 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 is implied here. And that's why they also put it in, like I said, a trailer park. It's supposed to give you that feeling of, oh, he just, he wants to just get out of there. There's also a lot of makeup effects in this film. There's one really good creepy one, which is when his clone is kind of cooking, if you will. There's a scene where he's not fully turned into him yet. And uh, the sheets of the bed, uh, he they go up, and you see his face, and he's all kind of gooey, and he has no hair, and his has no flesh. He's all disgusting looking, and his and his head is kind of pulsing up and down. And that I remember, even today, is a pretty creepy, startling scene. It's obviously a, a makeup effect, definitely not CGI back then. But uh, you do have a lot of masks in this film. The best one I would probably say is his co-pilot, Grig. Like I mentioned, it's it's a reptilian kind of face, uh, but it's a brown tone to it. He's got a brown tone to his scaly kind of face, as opposed to your traditional greens when they do any sort of reptile. There are other aliens that are supposed to be there to uh, get on their starfighters, but they eventually all get killed, and you know that's how you end up with the last starfighter. He's the last one left. And they do also have these masks that are very... Uh, I guess you could call it Star Wars-y cantina-ish. The problem with the masks that they use, I think, is that because the area is so lit it's so brightly lit because it's a briefing room that you kind of are not able to hide the flaws of the masks and and understand that you're dealing with guys in masks that's what you're seeing guys in masks uh so you kind i mean i'm not saying you're seeing the seams but you do get the feeling there's a guy in there moving his head and you know somebody might be manipulating an eyeball here an eyeball there through through some kind of device remote or or some kind of a line or an electrical pulley system or something so Unfortunately, that scene, it's, it's, it's almost like a little bit of Star Trek, uh, you know, the original series, whenever they bring an alien in a mask, it's like, oh God, it's an alien in a mask. <laughs> you know, you get that feeling. So that's a little disappointing. They do have one mask that works pretty well, which is the, the assassin that comes after the clone and, and also comes after Alex himself at a certain point in the movie. He has this weird design that has the, like, these two eyes that are protruding on either side of the head and they're kind of low like mid-range on the head but then the mouth is kind of high so they do this it's this weird combination this weird shifting of eye and mouth that makes them look kind of creepy but the reason it works so well i think is because the sequences where they use them they're at night so they're able to light them better and you can hide a lot of that imperfections and a lot of the fact that it's a guy in a mask and i'm sure there are certain scenes where it's probably an, uh, an animatronic you know it's a more controllable thing but it works better you know to me the, the 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 briefing scene is is the star wars cantina moment of this film you know they're, they're showing you a scene where you have a whole bunch of aliens and he's surprised by oh who are these people you know that kind of thing it works better in star wars because remember the cantina was darker it was very dark it was a little smoky in there, so they were able to blend it a little more. Here, all the lights are on and you can kind of see everything. So that's one of the little problems with that scene. There's a sequence in the movie where the bad guy breaks into the good guy's conference room by projecting a hologram of himself. Uh, now, we've seen holograms before in terms of Star Wars, for example. Here, for some reason, the holographic image that they use, to me, it looked a little 
cheap. It looked a little, again, it looked a little TV movie-ish. Very thick, like, matte lines along the edge. You know, you're projecting something on top of it. It does not look, you know, of the quality of a Star Wars or an Empire Strikes Back, you know, Emperor projecting on, you know, on the uh, Star Destroyer type of results. It looked very TV movie-ish. So that's something that, you know, one, one of my little criticism of this film. Going back to the makeup again, because, and I'm saying this because of the fact that we're dealing with the bad guy. The bad guy is, is of the same race as the people that they're trying to protect. He's the son of the, of the general, let's say. He's the evil son. And the way that they design their, their, their look is a little reminiscent, I think, of Babylon 5, because it's something where you have a very kind of bulbous head, let's say, with a high cranium, but it's completely bald on top. And around the sides, they have hair, but nothing on the top. So you have this kind of crowning thing going on, which is similar to Babylon 5, how they had like characters like, like Lanier, for example, you know, he's of that race that has that different cranial look. And uh, I'm sure, you know, that somebody might have said, you know what, I want something that looks like that. Granted, in Babylon 5, it's more of a, it's like a bone structure instead of hair. But they do have this thing where the top of the head is bald. And you have the hair or in this, you know, or, or, or the, the bone structure going around it. So that's very interesting. The sets are also a little difficult, uh, if you will, uh, because here's the thing. Because they were doing the special effects last like they normally do, and because these special effects were taking so long because they were rendering and you're never going to get the final look of it until the final look, the set designer was trying to gauge what things are going to look like and how he can blend them with an actual set. So... There are scenes where you have, for example, the briefing room and, you know, it's lit a certain way. Uh, They kind of have an idea of how it's going to be lit. And then you have shots that cut into all of the spaceships, you know, getting ready to take off, you know, in the launching pad. And that has to kind of match. So it's a little jarring uh, when you go from one shot to the other, because like I said, it was impossible to get it exactly right. You know, the lighting is close, the the colors are close, but yes, you do kind of all of a sudden, when you see that cut take place from a live action set to a CGI hangar, it's a little jarring. Back then, it might have been a little jarring. Now, it's a hundred times more jarring because right now you're used to something of so much better quality that it just kind of blows everything out of the water. The interior of the bad guy ship, uh, where the bad guy is is kind of conducting his his attack, also looks a little more cheap too. Uh, however, because of the use of darkness, you know, just plain black as a background and, and really far away, it hides a lot of stuff too, as opposed to the good guys with there's so much light in there, as I said before, that it kind of diminishes the quality of the masks that some of these actors are using. It also gives you a little more a look at how much studio space they actually have. And, you know, it, it doesn't help matters to see so much. However, with the bad guys, while it is good to see or not see certain things by making them black and dark to hide things, uh, the set itself reminded me a lot of a series that I used to watch a little bit, not a lot, uh, that I should take a look at again, uh, called Jason of Star Command and the bad guys there. To me, they look these weird reptilian-ish looking guys with these red armor and these little light. He had, one guy has this thing that flips over his eye like a monocle, but it's it's like red and square. And it's supposed to be, I guess, some futuristic looking weapon or something. I don't know. But that overall feel of that kind of gave me that vibe. There's an unusual scene that, again, I'm not entirely sure why. I should listen to the commentary, I guess, to get more information on this. But... There's a scene where Centauri, and again, spoiler alert, I said it already, Centauri allegedly dies, which we later find out he doesn't die, but he dies. And for some reason, when you have that scene of him looking at Alex and, and Grig and then looking at him and exchanging like final words, Centauri is looking off camera to the other two actors, but the other two actors, when they cut to them, it's almost as if they're looking straight at you. So I am not sure if that was a, an unintentional error in terms of direction, or it's some kind of artsy thing that it's supposed to connect with you. They're supposed to look at the audience and and, and express their emotions to you. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I really like to find that out. 
there's a sequence when the starfighter takes off, I think maybe for the first time or something like that, that reminded me a little bit of The Last Jedi uh, because, you know, they're wearing helmets and I think Alex has his visor up on the helmet and just the G-force of the ship taking off forces his visor to click down and to kind of go into, you know, a locked position. So that's kind of like, that was the first thing I ever remember, which I don't know if that's supposed to give me a good feeling or, or a bad feeling, <laughs> given how I feel about The Last Jedi. Now, the clone sequences are very interesting. As I mentioned before, the clone is there to kind of throw everybody, you know, to let, so they don't realize that, that Alex is not there. One of the things I learned through doing a little research is that Originally, you know, they did have the clone sequences in the movie, or they, they did have a clone sequence in the movie. But after the movie was shot, they actually went back and did more of them. Because uh, I guess they did some kind of test screening, and people really liked the comedic aspects of those scenes. Now, granted, you look at them, and to, to me at least, they look very TV sitcom-y in terms of the comedic situations that they frame or they, they, they stage, you know, for this clone to be able to, you know, interact with these people. Now, granted, it's a clone, but it's also a robot, so you got to keep that in mind. It's a clone robot. He starts off as a clone, but it's really a robot inside, so whatever. Now, what they did was they actually went back and reshot more scenes after the principal photography had been done of more clone sequences, you know, more little funny skits with the clone. And that is also why, because I remember watching this and I'm thinking, whenever you see the clone, most of the time, his hair looks weird or his face looks weird. And I kept saying to myself, wait, is it the same actor? And it is the same actor. But why does he look different? And I always kept saying to myself, he looks different. He looks different. Well, what happened was after they were done shooting the film, Lance Guest went on to his next assignment and his next movie or tv show or whatever and he cut his hair so when they needed him to return it was like uh-oh he cut his hair what do we do they put a wig on him so if you notice the scenes with the clones some of the scenes his hair looks bizarre it's because he's wearing a wig <laughs> that's that explains it and i couldn't put my finger on i'm like is it his hair is it his eyes they have different eye color you know what's going on but that's why he looks different now one of the locations that the kids go to in a certain sequence, and this is one of the clone sequences, to hang out is a place called Silver Lake. And I have a feeling it's supposed to be a throwback to Crystal Lake. Because when you watch the sequence, it's at night and there's a fire going, you know, near the shore of the lake. And the kids are all kind of getting uh, romantic, you know, with each other, that sort of thing. And it's, I'm like, this is like something out of Friday the 13th or something. And I'm just wondering if that's something they were trying to kind of imitate or a little throwback to a, to a slasher film. Since, uh, you know, you do have Nick Castle's connection to John Carpenter, grant that he's not the Friday 13th type of guy. He's, he's the Halloween guy. But I can, I can see how those kind of get all mixed up sometimes. There's a sequence in the film also that reminds I mean there's a lot of things here that remind me of Star Wars. There's a sequence in the in the film where before they attack the main bad guy ship, they go and hide inside an asteroid. And again, that's interesting that they are able to do that. Granted, this is a CGI asteroid, very different than before. So, uh, you know, you kind of say to yourself, well, Empire did it so much better, you know, 4 years earlier. Yes, they did but they weren't using miniatures. They weren't using CGI. Another connection to Star Wars is the company Apogee that I believe at the time was being run by John Dykstra, the amazing, you know, Star Wars alumni from ILM. However, in this film, what they probably did most of is I think like laser bolt fires, maybe some matte stuff, stuff like that, because basically I would imagine anything that's not CGI, they would have to then rely on that sort of thing. The beta unit also is very reminiscent these days, or 10, 15 years ago, or 20 years ago, I think, to the character of Data in Next Generation. And I wonder if, uh, if, if that's also a derivative of how they came up with the, the, how this character would be acting, because he does have this very robotic, you know, kind of getting used to his body, trying to become more human, trying to sound more human. And I bet, you know, if you look at those two side by side, the acting that he does as a, as the beta unit and, and the, the character of Data, it's, it's very, very similar. Now, here's another bizarre Star Wars connection. In 1978, this company, Digital Productions, who would then go on to do Tron and, and this film and, you know, many other things, they had 
done a sample CGI rendering of X-Wings. Now, this is 1978. This is based on Star Wars, the Death Star Trench battle, for example. They had done a sample of what could be done in digital technology. And it's on the internet. I'll see if I can put a link to it. There's six or seven X-Wings over a black background, and they're all kind of maneuvering together, and then they split apart, and then they fly, they do like a flyby and that sort of thing, and it's kind of like a sample reel of what could be done. At the time, ILM, I don't want to say they dismissed it, but they weren't convinced, I guess, at the time that this is something that would be viable for the future. They moved on and did Empire Strikes Back, the traditional way back then, you know, with optical printers and, you know, all that sort of thing. They did Return of the Jedi. They did a lot of stuff. And not until the 90s, which is almost, I would say, 15 to almost 20 years later, did they start dabbling in something like that. Now, something like that in terms of it being used for Star Wars purposes. Don't forget that in the mid-80s, Star Wars, or at least ILM, uh, had already started experimenting with digital technology on films like Young Sherlock Holmes, uh, where they had one of the first, you know, digitally created characters, you know, for a sequence in the film. Films like Willow, I think, they did some digital uh, morphing effects and that kind of stuff. So it's funny how, you know, the innovators, you know, because we always think, oh, you know, Star Wars, they just did everything. But no, it was baby steps. It, it took, you know, before a Star Wars film could get, their full digital effects roster going, you know, with the prequels. Hell, not even the prequels, the special editions. You did have ILM doing some amazing work on Jurassic Park, which, granted, that's what triggered the whole thing, you know, the the experimenting. Uh, you know, you had films like um, The Abyss. You had Terminator 2. You know, all these films that are groundbreaking in, in CGI technology. Let me talk a little bit about merchandising for this film. The film, I'm not going to say it was a blockbuster because it wasn't. It was a mild hit, let's say. It made its money. It pretty much doubled its budget, which is acceptable back then, but obviously not enough to it to have it a big, big push. Merchandising-wise, there was a number of items that were released. One of the biggest items that they had the biggest problem with was an Atari game. Because if you look at the credits of the movie, on the actual credits at the end, you could actually see something that says, you know, uh, you know, buy the Atari game or Atari game coming soon. And as I mentioned earlier, this was done, unfortunately, at the end, at the crash of the Atari craze. So that game never came out initially when it was planned on coming out. Now, as a result of that, or just by coincidence, by the movie not being as successful as a Star Wars, remember, everybody wants Star Wars level uh, success and not everybody's going to get it. As a result of that, a lot of merchandising didn't happen. They had a few items, a lunchbox here, a little book there. They had a read-along book, you know, like the other books. They had a comic book, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit. But they had actually planned to do an action figure line. And out there on the internet, you can find them, and I'll post a picture if I remember. There was an entire series of action figures that were supposed to come out. They were supposed to be three and three-quarter size. Uh, by Galoob, a company that I'm very familiar with, you know, in the 90s, they created all the Micro Machines and some other stuff like that. And they were supposed to do all of these characters. And the way that they were supposed to release them was in two packs, which was a, a, a different kind of style of releasing, you know, you get two figures, you know, every time, which is a great thing for kids. And I think they were also going to build an actual Starfighter. Uh, so the pictures out there are really, really good looking of what these figures could have looked like. Unfortunately, it never happened. And a similar pro problem happened with the video game. Like I said, the Atari thing went out the window. Later in 86, uh, they tried to do a different one by a different company. It was kind of like another game redubbed or renamed. So it wasn't exactly 100% The Last Starfighter. 1999, they tried to do one another. They tried to do another one. And at that time, also didn't work out. And then in 2006, I believe, they finally did put out something for people with home computers. And I think it was actually given away for free. It was a freeware kind of program where you can actually play the game and see the design of what it would look like. As a matter of fact, there's a documentary on the DVD, which you might also be able to find it on YouTube, I'm pretty sure, uh, that was released on the 1999 DVD. 
for the making of the film, which is hosted by the star, Lance Guest, and he's there standing next to an arcade version of that game. The funny part is that the real arcade version of the prop that was used in the movie was destroyed when the movie was done. So they had to recreate that in order to do that. And later on, there was a group that was able to kind of redo it and actually way later add the actual video game, that free one that I mentioned, into the actual console. Because remember, they they never finished, there was never a real version of this game. It was never manufactured. So finally, somebody got to make the exact thing that was featured in the movie. The comic book is one of the Marvel super special ones, which I've talked about the this series in the past, which takes an entire film, and sometimes you you see them uh, as individual ones, and sometimes you see them as the, the, the you know, all-in-one types. The one I have is the all-in-one types. And by going through it, I'm going to go over some of the differences. I'm going to say that it is a typical Marvel scenario, or just a general comic book adaptation scenario, where the people that are putting it together don't have all the elements. It is so obvious they don't have all the elements. Off the bat, in the cover... Yes, you do have a lot of the characters. The colors are completely wrong. Now, why would the colors be completely wrong? Well, the most obvious answer would be that you either don't have any reference material, but they do, because the costumes are pretty accurate looking, but the colors are off. Well, maybe that means they had black and white photos. That's a very big possibility, especially for a low-budget film. So it looks to me like they were provided with a lot of material, but not a lot of color material. So, for example... Alex is wearing a green flight suit, which normally he was wearing like a tan flight suit. The bad guys, the real alien-y bad guys, they have like like brown uniforms and they're supposed to be red. It's, it's Things are off. The comic itself has some of the normal tropes, I guess, that you would say you can find on some comics. Some of the shots look really well done, like they came from the movie, like somebody actually looked at photos or even footage. But again, I think all of this footage is black and white because the colors are just wrong. They, The colors just pop in a different way that don't pop in the movie. Right in the beginning, the character of, of his girlfriend, I think for the comic, they kind of sexed her up quite a bit. Yes, she is wearing shorts in the movie in the beginning, but here it's ridiculous what they kind of do with the shorts. They are, uh, you just have to see it. It's it, Now, granted, I understand this is a comic book and it's aimed at teenage boys, maybe prepubescent boys or, nah, from looking at this, um, uh, fr- from looking at these drawings, these are pubescent boys. <laughs> they, they really do a number on her character. Luckily, the mom, they kind of keep her dressed like the way she is, more or less. But the, the girlfriend, they really do something interesting. Again, you can tell that they didn't have all the elements. So, again, if you think about it, on a film shoot, they're not going to have, most likely, the graphics that are going to be inside the video game. And they probably never did. Whenever you saw that, it looked like it was done afterwards. So, when you look at the graphics of what is actually happening on the video game that Alex is playing, they look very different. They look like somebody's ideas of what they would look like or or drawing what they would look like, but it doesn't really match. There are no spaceships, actually, in any of this. So it's like interesting that they don't even have that. The backgrounds also are, and this is something I guess they do in a lot of comics, at least back then. I don't know if they still do it now, is that there's a lot of sections where there's just blank nothing behind. So not a picture frame, not a window, not a just a blank color background while a character is talking. And I granted, I understand that saves a lot of time for the artist not having to do a lot of detailed background work. But they, you do kind of get that feeling that there are certain sections where they're kind of moving, they're trying to move a little faster. The girlfriend, every scene she's in, they put her on these super tight shorts. And again, it's, I, I get the, the reason why they do that. I'm looking through the pages here. The likenesses are pretty good. Robert Preston looks pretty much what he looks like. Alex looks pretty much what he looks like. They, they did a kind of a good job. The car looks pretty much what it looks like. Grant did because that's an actual prop. That's on the set. And I did forget to mention that one of the designers, the conceptual designers, is Ron Cobb, who also worked for the effects company. He's a huge, huge guy when it comes to design, you know, especially in the 80s and films. He's got a huge resume of unbelievable material he's worked on. There are certain scenes here that are a little different. Uh, For example, when Alex gets in the car, I thought he got in the back seat. 
because the conversations were always with Robert Preston turning back, looking at him. But on the comic, they have him sitting in the front seat. So I'm wondering if maybe they never had any pictures of him interacting in the back, so they must have assumed everything was happening in the front. When he flies into outer space, it looks a little different. Again, because the effects were not there yet. So they kind of have somebody's idea of what it's going to look like. Granted, it looked a little different before. When Alex arrives to the base of where the good guys are, the first woman that meets him, who is an alien woman that has that weird cranial uh, design I mentioned earlier, again, they try to sex her up a little bit too on the comic. In the movie, it's not really that, (laughs) that obvious that they're going for that. The aliens look pretty accurate, again, because they were on set. So you have, you know, you can draw an accurate picture, but again, the colors are totally wrong. Everybody's colors are wrong. Their flight suits are the wrong color. The projection of the bad guy, the holographic projection, in the movie, it's just his head. Here, in the comic, it's his entire body. And he's like, you know, two stories high or something. Which, again, they got wrong because, obviously, this is material that wasn't ready to be shown at the time. You know, this is post-production work. Even the, the guy that is getting tortured, there's a scene where there's a, he captured one of his spies and they're torturing him, looks nothing like him. That was done, that must have been done way later. Grig, his, his co-pilot, they paint him green here. Remember I said, traditionally you take a reptilian creature and you paint them green? That's what they did. They painted him green. <laughs> you know, you just figure that people would have a couple of uh, references somewhere. The alien bad guys, let's see, they do have red color costumes in the comic inside which is different than the cover but the helmets are blue and i don't think they were blue so that's a little different the spaceships here's what's interesting about the spaceships the starfighter looks pretty accurate and the bad guy starfighters look pretty accurate but the bad guy command ship looks very different uh, it looks comp- very different than i'm what i'm used to seeing before when the bad guys attack the good guys, the command center, in the movie, they're throwing these bombs at them. But in the comic, they're throwing asteroids. Like from inside the ship. All these asteroids come out of from inside the ship. Like the ship is full of asteroids, rocks. Interesting that maybe that was an earlier concept that they couldn't do. Maybe they realized, you know, when I remember I said, when they had to go from 17 months to six months, that's when they had to cut the corners. Okay, forget it. Forget the 800 asteroid barrage. Let's turn it into six bombs. <laughs> that's a possibility. The transformation uh, from, let's say, humanish looking to alien of the assassin, special effect wise, it was a lot faster and you don't really see too much change. It's like you go from one to the other uh, with a flash kind of thing. But in the comic, it's more of a morphing kind of effect. Because I guess, that again, that's how they envisioned it for, for comic book purposes. The alien looks pretty good. Uh, and again, that's because they had a mask. And the mask was a very good mask, you know, in design. The entire sequence where Alex is actually attacked is also different. In the comic book, they're kind of attacked more or less in the open. And in the movie, it's more of a cat and mouse. You know, Alex is hiding behind something and he comes out. So there's a little bit of a difference in how that is staged, but it still ends in the same manner where, where you have Centauri, you know, getting hurt. Inside the Starfighter, and this is a very important point of the movie, the Starfighter is supposed to have this special secret weapon that's never been tried, other than the fact that it's a Starfighter. And in the movie, you get to a point where he activates the weapon and he starts shooting in all directions and he is able to kill all the bad guys that are flying around because the, the ship just turns into a gyroscopic laser beam spewing thing. In the movie, he has the controls off to the side, like to the right, like down. You know, we can grab him from the side. He opens a special door and he was able to press a couple of buttons in there. But in the comic, he has to press buttons that are in a different area of the console of the ship. Which probably means that not only were there no pictures of it, but that must have been like a lot of, and it usually is, a lot of that stuff is second unit work. Stuff that gets shot by a different group of people, and obviously with a second unit, you sometimes, I guess you don't have a set photographer, because a set photographer only works maybe on the main unit work, on the principal photography. Same thing happens, there's a scene where he's speeding, and the cops clock him doing like 300 miles to an hour or something, Centauri's car. It looked very different than it does in the comic. There's a scene in the movie where before they actually attack the the bad guys, they are kind of ambushed by these other ships that look completely different. Well, in the movie, that takes place inside the asteroid, 
and the ships, like I said, look, uh, they, uh, they have a saucer kind of section to their ships. Here they used a different, completely different design. Again, going back to the idea that they had absolutely no, no idea what the final thing was going to look like. So they're kind of making it up as they go along. The lake scene, <laughs> the, the Friday the 13th scene that I was talking about earlier. Yes. Again, his girlfriend is, is she's practically naked here. <laughs> Which I'm sure with the actor, if the actress ever saw this comic, she'd be like, that's not exactly how I was dressed. <laughs> and in the comic, not all of the clone, you know, the beta unit, not all of his scenes are in the comic. Now, partly you could say, well, yeah, the comic is not going to have every scene in it. True. That's true. The comic cannot have every scene on it. However, due to the fact that they did reshoots to add more scenes, that's another reason why I bet you a lot of these scenes never made it to the comic is because they probably, maybe they weren't even shot back then. So overall, the comic, it is pretty faithful. It is very faithful to the script. To the written words. <laughs> but in this particular case, it's an excellent example of an artist trying to make up for the fact that they don't have all the materials and how creative they can get, you know, trying to make up for it by going off of either their own imagination or whatever, you know, the producers are telling them of what things are going to look like, or at least at the moment, what they think things are going to look like, unbeknownst to them that because of just the way filmmaking gets done, things have to be changed. And because of deadlines and limitations, certain things will get scrapped and certain things uh, will look completely different. So that's your comic book adaptation of The Last Starfighter and our overall look at that film. Uh, the film is available in just about every format you can think of. It's usually one of the cheapy ones you can find in a bin at Walmart. It's on Blu-ray. Uh, so there, there is a good version of it. But again, keep in mind, uh, I don't think you're going to notice. There are certain films that whether you buy them on DVD or Blu-ray, it's not that different. And this film, you could say to yourself, well, you know, it has so much CGI work that I would rather see it on Blu-ray. Yeah, true. You might want to see it on Blu-ray, but I have a feeling Blu-ray will probably make it look even worse or more dated because of the difference of how you go from a live action to a CGI scene. And it's so abrupt today. Nevertheless, this is a very important film for many different ways. It is a genre film. It is part of this nostalgic 80s thing. Now, what's super, super interesting here is that Gary Whitta, who is a writer of many, many Hollywood films, including Book of Eli, who was also involved in Rogue One, and some comics even. I think he, he might have written the one of the uh, comic book adaptations of The Last Jedi, out of all things. He has been working... With Jonathan Boutel, who is the original writer of The Last Starfighter, on a possible remake or sequel or a new project having to do with The Last Starfighter. As of April of this year, he had put out a couple of conceptual drawings of what this new thing that he's going to do, hopefully, will look like. So, if you are a fan of this film... And like I said before, it has so many implications other than just the nostalgic value. It was part of this wave of 80s sci-fi that we grew up on. It is super important in the field of special effects, especially for CGI technology, as to one of the many stepping stones that you have to travel through in order to get to what we have today. And the fact that now it looks like because of whatever reasons... There is some nostalgic uh, leftover feelings that people are willing to maybe go back and take another look at it and maybe do something with the future because we do have so many reboots and remakes. It looks like this one might be on its way to your theater one day pretty soon. All right. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed today's show. We did a whole entire show on The Last Starfighter. Didn't mean to originally. But it just kind of happened to grow and grow. At first, I wanted to just talk about the comic book adaptation. And then I said to myself, you know what? I better watch the movie once again to see, you know, how it holds up. And that expanded, you know, all the things I wanted to talk about it. And then it also reminded me of all of the special effects related things that this movie was famous for. And out of the blue, I did a search for The Last Starfighter because I could have swore I saw something about somebody mentioning it lately for some reason and boom there's somebody who wants to you know continue with this film uh, some sort of sequel reboot or something so it's an it, definitely an interesting one you know if you're a sci-fi geek it's one to look up so on behalf of everybody here 
Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon here at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. Hello. Excuse me, son. Store's closed, mister. I'm not here for cigarettes or bubblegum, my boy. Can you tell me the name of the person who broke the record on that game over there, and where I might find him? Alex Rogan. You're looking at him. Alex Rogan. <laughs> who are you? Centauri's the name. I invented Starfighter, which is why I'm here. It is? It is. We have to talk about a matter of utmost importance. Step into my office. That's it. Come on now. Nothing to be afraid of. <laughs> oh, yes. Say hello to my assistant, Beta. Howdy. Ow! I must congratulate you on your virtuoso performance, my boy. Centauri is impressed. I've seen him come and I've seen him go, but you're the best, my boy. Dazzling, light years ahead of the competition, which is why Centauri is here. He's got a little proposition for you. you interested? I guess. Ha <laughs> ha Hey. What are you doing? Listen. Centauri wants to keep it for a surprise. Trust me. Oh, you're going to love it. Love it. <laughs> the amusing thing about this, it's all a big mistake. That particular Starfighter game was supposed to be delivered to Vegas. Not some flea-speck trailer park in the middle of tumbleweeds and tarantulas. So it must be fate, destiny, blind chance, luck even, that brings us together. And as the poet says... The rest is history. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! GeekFest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2018. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots Radio Network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>